What's it like to be responsible for defining the ongoing evolution of the food of the South? Can it even be done? I discuss this and more with Todd Price, a journalist with the USA Today Network. Join us today on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Todd Price is a food journalist for the American South by USA Today Network. Before that, he wrote for the old Times-Picayune in New Orleans and its online counterpart, NOLA.com. All this after a university teaching career in Spanish using his Ph.D. in Spanish literature. He's based in Arkansas, but his beat covers the Deep South, just as we cover the South here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Welcome, Todd. Glad to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. I think so, too. So the first thing I want to ask you, kind of to get us warmed up, is how did you pivot from language and literature to food and drink? A PhD is quite a commitment. So it's not as though you just said, oh, I'm going to be a high school Spanish teacher and have a degree in Spanish. You have a PhD. So that wasn't just um, an off-the-cuff decision. How did you get started there, and then how did you move into food and drink journalism? It took me six and a half years to get a PhD, uh, and I did that at Virginia in the ever-so-useful subject of uh, 16th and 17th century Spanish literature. Um, I dream but, uh, about which that. Which means I speak Spanish. So <laughs> <laughs> I can only say I was incredibly naive and lucky and privileged. By the time I finished my PhD, the job market was looking pretty shitty. Um, six years is a long time, so you, you start these things and, and the world looks different by the time you're done. And uh, job market for academics, I should say. And, uh, and so my wife had gone to law school. We met in grad school and uh, we were trying to figure out what to do. And I just got in my head, I wanted to write about food because I was too naive to realize everybody else wanted to as well, I guess. But I just always loved food and I wanted to write. And so I started a blog and I started blogging and living in D.C. for a year while I was finishing my dissertation. And just by chance, I happened to meet an arts blogger who'd seen my work and he introduced me to Pablo Johnson's wife at the time. Uh, Pablo Johnson's a local photographer, food writer. Uh, and he was the first person I met when I moved to New Orleans in 2004. So uh, I think a lucky break. And I just kept grinding it out as a freelancer for probably eight or nine years while I was teaching at Tulane until I was hired on staff at the time to pick you in, I guess, about seven, eight years ago. So how did you define the way you were writing when you went to the Times-Picayune? Well, I mean, before I came on staff, you know, I basically wrote for everybody in town. I I was a food critic at Gantt. Um, I replaced Sarah Rowan there, who 
brilliant writer and great friend of mine. Uh, and I did that for six months to the day until Katrina hit. My my last review was of Gotros, and I think it never was distributed. And then I came back and I worked for uh, New Orleans Magazine for about a year. And then I worked for Offbeat with my friend Alex Rawls, who was the editor there for a couple of years. And I did a lot of guidebook work. But when I came on at the time, six years, you know, Brett Anderson was the critic and the main dining writer. Uh, Judy Walker was still there covering food and cooking. And they really asked me to come on and cover restaurants like a newsbeat. Um, and those were my initial marching orders. Um, and is that unusual yeah. in the in the newspaper world? I mean, to consider restaurants and what happens there news? I, I think it's unusual because you have to have enough resources to devote a couple of people to dining, and I don't think there's many papers that still do that. Um, you know, certainly the New York Times has people, and a lot of other major big papers like Houston have a critic and also someone covering the dining scene. It was something we'd never done before. It had started before I got there, Susan Lang and Henning, and then I was hired when she moved over to edit the uh, real estate section. But yeah, you know, I, I do think it was somewhat unusual. I think it was a recognition that restaurants in New Orleans plays such a large role in the conversation, but also the economy mm-hmm. and who's opening, who's closing, what's happening. All, all of that was important to cover and in, of interest to the reader. Now, my role changed over time. By the end, Brett was part-time and doing a lot of freelancing. So I shifted to do more features, more reviews. But, but initially, it was just drive it, you know, get every scoop that you can get every opening, every closing, every big bit of news. Um, and that's kind of how we started. So, Well, I remember some of the contests or surveys or whatever they're called that, that we were on together, like the fried chicken and the pizza. Oh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> right, those massive like, <laughs> tastings where we would ask readers for their top five. And then we had this, back when we had, uh, you know, the entertainment staff was 19 when I retired, which I think when I left, there were five of us. So yeah, we, we would show up at the restaurant and there'd be what, five or six of us to taste. And we'd have a photographer and an editor there. <laughs> it was just like there's a road show oh, I of know. tasting. The fried chicken was fabulous. We went everywhere from Popeye's to Dookie Chase's. We, we tried them all. So we had celebrity guests and each stuff. I, I, I Some of them were actual celebrities too. Right, they were. I mean, it was it was really a whole lot of fun. We we, we got Brian Bass. He fried chicken with us. That's so. right. I remember that. He and I talked about how and many calories there were in eating. That's right. Fried and, and, and the, the burlesque performer trick he makes as well. And I don't think either of those people two people actually eat much fried chicken. But. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've, I've still got the photo actually in my office here of when I presented Leah Chase with the award for the best fried chicken in New Orleans. Um, and I remember she beat out um, Ed Willie McIntyre. May- and Willie May. But he was more excited to beat out Ed because apparently Ed <laughs> McIntyre is a regular Dookie Chase. And I remember she said, like Leah said, I got you this time, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was really fun. I don't think I don't think it's that way anymore. Um, I, I feel like there was a time when you would just read about the restaurants, you read about recipes, you read about food and food culture, 
I mean, it, I think at the Times Picayune, it went all the way back to like Lefcadio Hearn. And when he wrote yeah. for, I think he wrote for the Times um, before it was the Times Picayune. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. this was a newspaper that was devoting space to recipes and did not have a woman editor. So it wasn't like the the ladies page. It was given to mm-hmm. a man to write as though this was just part of the scene. Yeah. Well, on the restaurant side, it was really Jean Borg, who was the critic in the 90s, 80s and 90s, who he was the one that established kind of the standards and decided that the restaurant side would run with the same kind of standards as you know the New York Times uh-huh. and these other large publications. So yes. um, Gene really sort of started that era. So. Well, so now you are living in Arkansas and um, that's right. You- as of about three or four weeks ago. So. Yes, but you know, especially today, it almost doesn't matter where you live. You can be on top of everything wherever you are. That's yeah, that's and, and my new job, I'm, it's really regional. So um, if I can ever travel again, <laughs> I, um, you know, the plan is for me to kind of do a week-long road trip every couple of months and hit three or four cities throughout the South and come back with material for stories. Um, there's a new publication I'm working for, The American South, which was launched in January. You know, we, we really are trying to look across the entire deep South. Uh, I'm, I'm covering food, there's two other reporters doing some harder news and features. Um, so, yeah, if I ever get permission to get on the road and it's ever safe again, then, uh, I'll, I'll be traveling out and about. So, when you say you're covering food, is that food and drink, or is somebody else covering drink? No, I, I'm covering food, drink. And I do think we're shifting a bit, uh, partially just because when you take a regional focus, it changes the way you look at it. But also with COVID, I think we're shifting more to stories about agriculture, farming, uh, food economics, workers. I think we're really starting to try to focus more on some of those stories. Um, well, especially so right now. We have kind of in the pipeline. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, with most restaurants closed, I mean, I've written quite about, a bit about that. But you almost have to kind of reevaluate how you're covering things. And, and it's not as if with restaurants closed that we're not still thinking about and talking about and caring about and needing information about food and how we eat. It's just changing. Well, and, you know, I think it's been the chefs often who've gotten all mm-hmm. of the glory. And right yep. now we realize realize the hard way how important the agricultural workers are because people have seen food shortages in certain areas, things that were being grown specifically for restaurants and those poor farmers Mm -hmm. have no way to pivot to make that food available to the consumer more directly, either because it's not packaged properly for grocery stores or whatever. And yeah, I I will say, I mean, yeah, I mean, I will say, I mean, I, from my reporting, I do think farmers are in a better position than others to do that. I mean, obviously, packaging for grocery stores is an issue, but they do have direct consumer, you know, opportunities, farmers markets, CSAs. Uh, the people I've written about um, that I think are in a tougher position are shrimpers and fishermen, uh, because so, I mean, consumers just don't buy that much seafood. Um, most of that goes to restaurants. 
Right. Um, and, and I think partially it's more expensive and people are more cautious about cooking it. They're a little more, I think in general, people are, are less comfortable cooking seafood, maybe not in Louisiana, but <laughs> around the world. So, I mean, when you talk to these shrimpers and they say, you know, maybe 90% of their products are going to restaurants or, I mean, the oyster farmers um, as well. I mean, really in a much more difficult situation. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think it really, this, this, thing where people are cooking more at home, even mm-hmm. even with restaurants who have uh, or which have takeout and curbside pickup and all of that sort of thing. I don't think that they're doing the same amount of business that they would do no. if they had people able to come to their restaurant and eat. And now that we're having an uptick in the number of, of people who are being infected by uh, COVID-19, mm-hmm. I think that they're scaling back a lot of the the openings, so it's once again dependent on the farmers and the grocery stores. I've just been excited about grocery store workers recently, and the fact that they're continuing to go to work and basically taking a kind of risk that you don't have to take if you're lucky enough to be able to work from home. Yeah, yeah. And I really have to admit that I hadn't thought about grocery store workers in quite that way before. This has really mm-hmm. opened my eyes to a lot, a lot of things. Well, so what well, and I think we see again and again. I mean, the people who we depend on the most, who also are getting paid the least, and are most, oh, know, absolutely in, in, the, in the worst position to refuse. I mean, they just that, um, that, that's right, and they're the most invisible. Yes. Right, exactly. exactly. And you know, I, I think it's a part of the reason why disproportionately we're seeing COVID affecting people of color because often it's Hispanic workers and black workers who are in highly exposed uh, service industry jobs disproportionately. So, yes. I mean, obviously there's other issues about flying health conditions for a lot of reasons of structural racism, but you know, the jobs people have play a role in what who's getting this disease. Oh, I, I definitely I definitely think that's true. Yes, and which is you know why I think I think all of us are rethinking how we write about these things. I mean, we not that we shouldn't have been aware of these before, but um, uh, I mean, all of the situations drive home inequalities that we probably all should have been paying more attention to before. I think in our well, now they're front and center because they're being uncovered. Let's put it that way. Right. So I did want to ask you though about the coverage of the South. One of the things yeah. that I think is evident to me, especially as we continue to develop new exhibits at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, which covers the whole South, is how much the South is not monolithic. And yeah. it is not just one idea. And I wonder what you experience when you try to cover the American South for USA Today. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword in some ways. My editor will constantly, you know, the constant question is, why are we writing the story uh, and not somebody else? How is this our story? And that often is, you know, how does it reflect the region in some way? How does it reflect the issues in the region? Um, and, and on the one hand, I think it's great because so often when you're a local journalist, it's very hard to see the broader context. It's very hard to look outside what you're doing because you're so focused on your particular town or city and 
seen and taken by journalists. You know, it's a flood of information and you're just trying to keep up. So I do love the fact that I'm constantly, you know, pushing to try to make those connections and try to look more broadly and, and ask, you know, if something's happening in one state, is it happening somewhere else? Is it happening in cities? Is it happening in smaller towns? Why is it happening here? But, you know, the flip side of that is that you're right. I mean, South is very diverse. I think we talk about it as this one region, but it, every state, every, you know, Every state is different. The big cities are different from the small towns. Uh, you know, New Orleans and or Louisiana and South Carolina. I mean, are, they're both part of the South, but they're both really incredibly different. Um, and so I think the flip side of that is, if you do worry constantly, are you just shoehorning things together because you are trying to look regionally and just claiming there's a connection when there isn't? And I think for too long. You know, we have claimed there's connections and similarities and, you know, uh, across the whole region that probably don't actually exist. And if we look more carefully, we'd probably learn more by noticing how these places are different. But why do we do that? Why do we want this to be like one voice when, Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Well, I mean, there's a history of, nostalgia for the South and trying to oppose it to the North. For me, the more, you know, obviously there is environmental, you know, when we look at food, there's a similar environment throughout the area. But I, I think, like, I keep coming back. I don't know what unifies this region except for the institution of slavery and its consequences. Um, when you look across the region, you know, you look at, at that institution and the war that was fought and the way it continued these same restrictions and you look at the poverty of the region, you look at who's poor and you look at all of these things and I, I just feel like more than anything, I don't see what else unifies this region. Um, it's the consequences of that institution of slavery that is playing out daily that I think more than anything is, is what connects from one side to the other. Um, no, I, I think, I, I think you're right. I, I can't think of one other thing that right. you can say the represents the entire South other than slavery. Right. Yes. And, and it plays out, you know, I mean, it plays out in the food we eat because it's, you know, the enslaved, People who came here and the traditions they brought are at the foundation of Southern food. So, you know, it's not just on the civil rights side and the negative consequences. It also plays out in these cultural aspects that we also celebrate because of contributions of the the Africans to um, to this region. So, I, I just, I, you know, I struggle a lot with this. Like, how do we define this um, in a way that's honest? To the region and its history, and it's something I'm thinking a lot about these days. Um, I I think uh, it's it's so very full of kind of too many too many contradictions, or so many contradictions. Um, mm-hmm. I know, for example, in Louisiana history, we we knew that enslaved Africans who had the technical skill to grow rice were actually brought to Louisiana to grow rice. 
and mm-hmm. yet they were considered people who weren't shouldn't learn to read or shouldn't have agency, and yet they were given all this agency on the fields because they alone had the technical skill to do it. Right. It's so doesn't make sense when you look back on it, but somehow we kind of perverted our thoughts in order to allow it to to ex- exist. And that's just one example. There are just so many different things. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we both know for so long there was this attempt and it's on to view the South as one of the nostalgia. But I think, you know, I, I don't think if you accept it as what unifies the region, that it then means there's only negative stories to be told because there are stories celebrating people who haven't gotten celebrating their contribution, celebrating their food. Um, so I, I think, you know, once you realize that this is a unifying factor across the region, I think it allows you to make and focus on stories that need to be told that haven't been told, that are celebratory that are as well. So do you think that there's a thread from the time of the the formation of the colonies and the importation of enslaved Africans and all the way to today as it relates to food, whether it's on the fields, whether it's on the water. I, I think of it even in terms of waste management. It's so often people of color who are picking up the garbage so it goes from one end to the other, but I just wondered whether you had some thoughts on that. Are you are you talking about in the South in particular? I'm or? talking about the South in particular, yes. I guess my mind is on, at the moment, in the last couple of weeks, thinking about the ingredients that came to us from Africa, say West Africa and the recipes, uh, partially because I just did a, a Q&A interview with Chris Smith, who wrote the book, The Whole Okra. Um, and, and certainly, you know, okra is an ingredient that uh, came to the South through the through the Africans who brought it here. Uh, they've trade, and I just also am working on a profile of a young Senegalese chef. You you know well, uh, <laughs> Senegalese American, uh, Serene Mubai. Yes. Um, but also, you know, talking to uh, Pierre Cham for this story, who's a, a real proponent of Senegalese food in the U.S. And, and as you read these recipes and taste the food of Senegal, the connections are just so obvious. Uh, the flavors are so similar, and you know, uh, jambalaya and so similar to dishes from Senegal. Uh, it's just undeniable. I mean, these sort of beans and rice combinations that we see throughout the Caribbean and the South, these clearly are coming from West from Africa. From West Africa, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just. It's just undeniable. Like once you taste these things, you know it's not an intellectual recognition; it's just a a physical recognition that these flavors are the foundation of how how we eat in the region. I mean, that's where these flavors came from. The flavors that we love, the flavors that we. It's undeniable. I mean, when you Mm -hmm. taste it, it's. I agree with you. It's not intellectual anymore. It is absolutely an undeniable visceral response and it's a f- mm-hmm. visceral recognition this is this is the, my food yeah 
it's not our food, but I mean, it is because that's what we mm-hmm. grew up eating. Yeah, um, it's both familiar and exciting and new. It's this wonderful sort of combination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, yeah. I do love that okra book. Um, that's uh, Oh, I do too. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and he really covers everything from growing I, to cooking to the history. Um, and I have I have planted uh, several okra plants in my garden because I've been gardening more, even though I'm not a big gardener. And I mm-hmm. went out and I picked okra leaves and cooked them <laughs> after. How are they? I mean, I, I don't. I can't grow anything where I am right now because there's a lot of deer. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, yeah, I know in the book he encourages the eating of okra leaves and okra flowers. Uh, have you eaten the flowers? Um, no, I haven't eaten the flowers because I want them to turn into actual okra. So um, okay. I haven't done that. But I also read somewhere, and of course I love okra, so I don't need an excuse. Mm-hmm. But um, Right, me too. But um, I read somewhere that there was a, oh, it was Jamie Oliver who was trying to encourage people to eat okra. And he said, think of them as green beans and cut them like that. And then Hmm. just use them instead of green beans in something. And I thought, you know, that might be a great way to introduce people to them. I could just see green beans in with slivered almonds and maybe okra Mm -hmm. with slivered almonds might be kind of tasty. And um, so I'm, I'm also going to try that as a way to mm-hmm. kind of expand the way they're used as opposed to traditional ways, but um, other, I, other ways I to find think about one it. of my favorite ways to cook them, and I, I think I had this at a restaurant in New Orleans, and I, I can't feel like which one, but it was just just grill them. Like get a really hot cast iron pan, mm-hmm. maybe a really light sheen of oil, and just grill them whole so they're kind of charred. Um, because you can eat, I mean, the okra raw is delicious. Oh, so yeah. Just kind of right. Putting a little bit of uh, flavor on it with some of the grill. I, I, I yeah. think that would be that would be a really simple and tasty way um, to Although enjoy. last night I just stewed a bunch with a can of diced tomatoes. Uh, I, I went old school. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I happen to like that over grits. I just think that's the best. Mm. Well, Todd, thank you so much for being with us. And thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come and visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.